0: People have said this before. I mean, in a lot of ways, business partnerships like marriages, right? You know, you have a lot of the same aspects, obviously, not all the aspects, but you know, you've got, you know, you spend a lot of time with that person, you're making decisions together, Joint finances involved, you know, etc.
1: Welcome to the picture of wealth or t as we call it. I am your host, Dustin Service. That is the voice of Corey Kupfer, who is a lawyer who is in the, in the deal. He's the author of the book, Authentic Negotiating. So he is in transactions and helping business owners sell their business, sell large commercial real estate. So he definitely helps us understand the legal side of what's going on in a deal. He helps us understand how to sell for a higher multiple and what in a transaction, like deep in the weeds at the final finish line, what are people negotiating over? What are the push and the pulls? If your business is dependent on you, you might sell for less of a multiple. If you've got it really your systems in place, then you would sell for a higher multiple. We'll have to stay around less time. There's a hiring crunch. That's what we hear. Listener, if you're a business owner and you need a succession plan, you're probably saying, well, where can I find someone that's just like me? Well, it starts with a limiting belief, the limiting belief mindset saying, you know, there is nobody out there and that's what you're going to find. And so he breaks down, how can we get over that? And how can we get on with finding somebody to take the reins or finding a suitable buyer? The last half of the podcast is really geared towards lawyers you know, how to fit into a deal. So if you're a solicitor, should you be hourly or contingent? And should we go hourly after the first draft? And then he talks about building and scaling a law practice, which is quite fascinating because it really requires a lot of systems and a lot of people are involved in a large law practice. So he talks about creating efficiency using certain systems. So again, I am excited to introduce Corey Kupfer. All right, I'm excited to have Corey Kupfer on the podcast today, and we're talking uh, business deals, we're talking law, we're talking joint ventures, strategic alliances, business partnerships, sponsorships, you know, anything business. If you like business, this is the podcast that you're going to want to listen to. Corey, thanks a lot for being on the show today.
0: It's great to be with you. That's that I, I look forward to talking
1: now, Corey, I, as a as a student of you know the investment world for eighteen years, uh, you know just warm us up. Uh, you shared a little bit about you know being down Wall Street a long time ago. Were was this a stockbroker thing or a lawyer thing? You know what? Why were you down? Or were you just hanging out in the street? What were you doing down there? Yeah, I
0: love it. Um, no, so what happened was I, I started working at big New York City firms, and they were really uh, more Midtown located. But then in uh, 1992, uh, about six years out of school, when I hung out my own shingle because I. Didn't want to work for somebody the rest of my life. The first office I took it wasn't really even an office. So back then it was way before Regis and WeWork and all these shared office spaces. That wasn't a concept. Um, but there was a guy who had one of those. It was like this new thing. Um, in fact, he became a client, uh, and uh, he had something uh, that was uh, eventually became uh, called the Always Wall Street Office. Uh, and when I started there, it was uh, it was something else. But in any case, they had a, at the time they had what was a very cutting edge new technology back then which was that somebody could call in and it would show up on your computer, on a computer screen with a receptionist that it was law officer Corey first, So they could have like a hundred different companies. This was brand new technology back then. And then they could take a message from me and they could actually transfer it to me up at my little studio apartment on the upper side of, uh, of Manhattan. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm, jo- I'm joking, but it was true. That was like cutting edge technology then. Um, so the fact that I could have a, a receptionist and appear to be in the office, Was new. So I worked out of a studio apartment up east side, but I would meet with clients at a conference room down on Wall Street. Uh, if I, you know, if I had a meeting with a client and then eventually actually took a physical office there, you know, in a shared office suite. Uh, and then, um, after that, we signed a 10 year lease at uh, 40 Wall Street. So I was down on Wall Street as a lawyer for about 15 years. Um, and you know, we used to represent some of the guys on New York Stock Exchange, the floor brokers, and um, you know, we're doing uh deal and securities work then and, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the wall street office. I and mean, I actually got some clients from other States, especially see in New York, people are, yeah, people actually knew that, uh, midtown real estate was more expensive than, than wall street, but, but from out of state and out of the country, it was an impressive address uh, at the time. And, uh, it actually got me some business.
1: Well, that's, uh, well, that's exciting. So you were a lawyer doing what, uh, you know, again, we're going to talk about what you're doing now and sort of business uh deals but yeah. what were you doing back then specifically
0: yeah so it's interesting i mean i for most of my career i've i've been doing what i did and now but just to sort of share a little you know i was fortunate enough to graduate at, you know from nyu high in my class in 1985 so when you combine all those things i had 17 job offices, i could have had more at the top firms because there's a boom economy you know grade school top of my class right so um uh, so, you know, I'm this cocky 24 year old kid who's about to make more money than I've ever seen because I grew up in a low middle class family and I didn't, you know, but, you know, my, my parents eventually, as I got older, became more comfortable. But, but at that time, you know, they didn't, they never made a lot of money. And, um, and, and, and I, I, I for some reason was sure that I wanted to be a management side labor law attorney. Um, I don't know why I took some classes in law school. I thought that was interesting. And um, I ended up, out of all the, the big firm offices I had, I also knew that I didn't want to work in a mega big firm because I was, you know, just, I don't know, I didn't want to get buried in the library for four years, you know? Um, so I, because of all that, I went to a firm called Syphos Shaw, Fairweather & Geraldson, which was a Chicago-based uh, firm that had offices in New York and LA and San Francisco and uh, Miami. And um, and they were they were a big firm, but they were sort of a rung below the, the, you know, the top New York firms. But they were the number one firm at that time in management-side management labor law. So that's why I went there. It was like the peak job for what I said I wanted to do. I won't tell a whole long story, but let's just say that sometimes karma or, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, the big shot I thought it was, uh, circumstances happen, and, uh, you know, that, that teach you some lessons. And um, when I came back, so what happens is if you're fortunate enough to go to good law school, you actually get a job during your second summer when you're still a law student working at that firm, and then they give you an offer. So I knew I had a job going into third-year law school. Well, when I came back to work there, they had brought in a new guy to head up the labor department, who was, frankly, one of the biggest jerks on earth, and it became a horrible... It went from a great place over the summit to a horrible department to work in, and that was combined with the fact that the uh, corporate securities group uh, was very, very busy. This was the the mid-'80s. It was crazy, the 1986 tax law you know, change was coming, and um, and, they, and they, they needed help. So they asked me, because they, they had promised me I'd be in labor, so they couldn't force me, but they asked me whether I'd help out, and I ended up splitting time that first year, half between labor and half between corporate and securities work, so deal work, uh, public securities work, like uh, initial public offerings and secondary offerings and that kind of stuff, and leverage buyouts. And uh, I ended up loving the corporate and deal and security stuff, and I ended up hating the labor stuff largely because, you know, of the person who was there and I quickly made the switch in my second year uh, over to uh, doing corporate deal work and having looked back.
1: Well, that's amazing. Well, I guess, uh, you know what, you've, you've written a book called Authentic Negotiating and we're going to get into it, but the the premise that I think, you know, many of the, you know, listener, if you have a business and you're about to sell it or listener, if you have a business and you think one day you will sell it, you want to listen to this and this is, you know, what... What things do we need to start setting our business up with now? Again, if we're about to sell, it's, it's super important. But if we're not about to sell, why wouldn't we start thinking like we're going to sell now and start putting the right framework in place that you help people do before selling? So long-winded question of saying, you know, pick, you know, pick me. I'm, uh, you know, I've got five years to, to build my company and, and I'm 60 years old or I'm 55. What, what steps am I taking and, and who am I talking to?
0: Yeah, so, so there's a few things. And, and I love the fact that you're talking about thinking in advance because the options that you have are so much uh, more um, if, you, if you plan in advance, right? So uh, what, what are some of the things that, that you should do? Well, the, the, the biggest single thing is that most businesses don't aren't sellable and or they're not sellable at higher multiples because they're too dependent upon the owner. Or owners right so if you have a five-year time horizon take a look at how much the you know could, could, could you leave for a month or six months and have the business still run without you right and if, if that's not the case then you got to work towards making the business less dependent upon you and listen that's a great thing to do anyway i mean there's you know michael Gerber's book e-myth is like a bible in the entrepreneurial you know community it's all about you know uh having the business be able to run without you you know working on the business not in the business um and that's a great thing to do, even if you're never going to sell, because why not create a you know, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, did we just buy ourselves a job or are we actually creating a business that, you know, that's not dependent upon us? So if you haven't done that yet um, and you have a five year or three year or whatever is time horizon where you want to sell, the first thing I would do is look at how you can get out of stuff, who you can delegate to. You can hire a management team and make the, the business less dependent upon you. Because you'll get a higher multiple for it, and also, um, you know, if you're if you're looking to sell because you're looking to retire or exit, travel the world or play golf or whatever it is, um, the less dependent upon it, it is on you, the less you're going to have to stay on as an employee post transaction, right? Because you know, if it's super dependent upon you, they're going to make you a conditional deal.
1: What do you mean? But, I want my check and I'm out of there. That's right.
0: That's right. And you know, and that's so you know, it's rare that that happens, but but you can shorten the period. You know, you can. You know, as opposed to, you know, having a three-year employment contract they're locking you into, you could potentially shorten it to a six-month consulting arrangement, right, if the business is less dependent upon you and they're getting other key people that can continue to run it. So, you know, that's my biggest piece of advice. The other thing is, you know, you want to look at, uh, you know, get in contact with professionals early, right? You don't necessarily have to retain them on some big retainer, but, you know, they're going whether it's your, uh, your attorney, your accountant, investment banker or a business broker, if, if, if you're going to go that route, um, start talking to those people because they're going to be able to educate you on the market. They're going to be able to give you some more tips on how you, you know prepare yourself. They're going to make sure, uh, you know, I'll give you another specific example. Um, you want to clean up. I mean, if you're like a lot of smaller and mid-sized businesses, you may not have some of the formalities. Your financial statements may you know need to be worked on a little bit. You may need to look at Um, taking out some of the personal expenses you're putting through the business so your EBITDA shows higher, right? You're going to want to clean up your due diligence, you know, legal due diligence, you know, those long-term contracts you have where you, maybe they technically expired uh, and you didn't get a formal renewal because you have a good relationship with the client. Well, if you go to sell the company, they're going to have a problem if you don't have a actual, you know, contract that is extended and and still going on if you have those kind of relationships. So, those are the kind of things you get out ahead of to do the financial due diligence, the legal due diligence, any compliance if you're in a regulated industry, um, as well to put yourself in, in a position to be more sellable. Because one of the biggest things I always say to folks is, listen, the seller, especially, you know, may not be the principal of the seller, but the team that that seller sends in is basically coming into your company due diligence to find some reason not to do the deal, right? right? So you want to get prepared to, to look professional, to present well to know what they're going to be looking for and if you have time in advance you know that you can do that a lot better you certainly you know it's it's a lot harder um especially on the financial side you know to start uh you know cleaning up financial statements and looking back when it's uh, you know uh three months before the deal rather than three years before the deal
1: how important so you mentioned something that's key uh, and we see it in our region you know there's about a, it's a major town about 220,000 people so you got many Successful businesses would be sort of you know uh two to twenty million kind of range uh, and but a lot of those businesses could be you know one key person you know, though the founder and uh, you know five to twenty five sort of employees and often what I hear when we're working with with clients is, well I'd just go out and hire somebody you know what, where would I find these people you know it's just there's there's often this feeling that there is nobody out there that could do what they do. And so how important is it for business owner, listener to figure that out or to find resources? And I'm hoping we can uncover some resources because a lot of listeners, that'll be a a major aha moment that there is things out there and people do transactions all the time. People hire things. And if your intention isn't is set on, there is nobody out there. Well, guess what you're going to get? So how you know, where does your brain go when I ask you that question?
0: Yeah, there's so many layers to that. It's a really important question. So the fl- first place I want to start is where there may be some limiting you know, beliefs that that entrepreneur has that are just not true, right? And you sort of alluded to it, right? I mean, you know, th- it's never true that there's nobody out there, right? It, I mean, the different markets, different geographies, different whatever, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little harder versus, you know, a little easier. Um, but, you know, that's not the case. And a lot of times – that unfortunately doesn't come from a, a real understanding of who's out there and who's not out there. It comes from a um, one of the issues that we entrepreneurs have sometimes, where we have an inability to, uh, first, you know, we think it's all about us, and we have an inability to delegate or trust other people. And you know, we, we and, and you know, I even have clients and entrepreneurial friends who you know give me evidence of that. Oh, I remember there was this one time where I delegated this this person and it didn't work out and I had to take it back. And, but the answer is when you delegate to somebody or train, some, and, and by the way, not to mention training, right? Like training people up if they, if it, you know, um, and this idea that nobody's going to do it as good as I do it, um, you know, in, in part, listen, some of the stuff that makes us most successful as entrepreneurs also can be the biggest negatives, right? I mean, the fact that we can figure stuff out, we can get done, we're going to work until it, you know, until it happens. Is, is a big part of what gets us going and has us be successful. But over time, and certainly if you want to get your business to the place where it's where, where it's scalable and where it's there's enterprise value, right, that's beyond you, you have to shift out of that. So I, I often talk about mindset on my podcast and with my clients or whatever. So the first thing is that mindset shift, right? And uh, I will share with you, Um, there was, um, I'm a member of entrepreneurs organization, which is a global organization of, uh, business owners of, you know, with certain revenue level where, and we had a speaker, um, actually two partners who were speakers one time. And I, I, frankly, I can't even credit them, unfortunately, I don't know the names, but they said something that was great. They, they scaled a very big, you know, what ended up to be a very big company. And one of the things that they said that they had to get past in terms of this mindset shift, uh, that helped them do that was they established a rule. It was... yeah, you know, um, well, I'll tell you the rule. But it wasn't like this hard and fast. They said if somebody can do it eighty percent as good as us with del, you know, as us with delegating, right? Now, don't get hung up on the percentage because it's not really. It's just a concept, right? And the truth is, in my business as a lawyer, if if somebody only did it eighty percent as good, that would be a problem. We don't. We can't afford twenty percent mistakes. But but they they were talking about a mentality because the truth is. Uh, even even if you think somebody can do it 80% of, uh, as good, most of that 20% that you don't think they can do it as good is much less real about the quality of the work. It's much more that they do it differently or that you don't trust it or the, it's got to be you, right? So they, they they use that as a mantra to switch their mentality and they grew you know a huge company and then ended up exiting it at a very high amount. So the first thing is that mindset shift to say, hey, you know, it's not about you. There are people out there. You can hire them. Yes, you may need to do some training, and by the way, when you delegate to them and they do mess it up once, you don't pull it back. You, you know, you lean in, you, 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 you lean in, you train them further. You, you know, it's, you got to give them room to make some mistakes. You made mistakes as well when you were figuring it out. Um, you know, so remember that. So that's that's the first shift. Um, so it's, and then that's then there's the willingness to sort of when you bring people in, share, you know, not only train them up, but also sort of share power, let like go of decision making. Um, and people who can do that are the ones that actually, you know, can build, can build the management team because listen, I'm not saying you can't sell your company if you don't do that, but one, you'll probably get a lower multiple. Two, you, you may have to work longer. And three, even if you, you don't have to do those things, you're limiting your buyer pool. So now maybe, maybe you have to, you know, only sell to a strategic who doesn't really need the people, right? Because they have, they do exactly what you do. And they can just absorb in your clients, but they're not going to pay as much for that as, as, you know, as having financial buyers at the table, having, uh, owner operator buyers at the table, you know, and other people who need more support. So, um, that's the reason to really do that work. Mindset shift is the start though.
1: Yeah. I, I appreciate it. And, and kind of finishing off with that same topic about you're going to success your business at some point and you've got a younger partner involved. So, what do you see as the biggest risks in business partnership in general?
0: Yeah, yeah. So listen, I, I actually did a, I actually did an, a solo cast on my podcast recently about business partnerships, and even shared some of my uh, successes and failures. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'd be happy to. So I mean, listen, uh, you know, people have said this before. I mean, in a lot of ways, business partnerships like marriages, right? Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, you have a lot of the same aspects, obviously. Not all the aspects, but, you know, you've got you, know, you spend a lot of time with that person. You're making decisions together, joint finances involved, you know, et cetera. Um, so a lot of things I talked about, even just in terms of hiring people in terms of the willingness to share power and see control or whatever come up, you know. But for me, the biggest thing is uh, is is whether there's, you know, a shared vision. Right. Um, you know, and, and because if there's a shared vision, usually and good communication, you can usually end up working through stuff. The partnerships that I've had, where they've gone off uh, the rails, uh, you know, the first one was a law partnership I had, where there was shared vision in the beginning, but then there was a divergence, and there was actually the biggest issue in that one, and this comes up, and you know, I'm only sharing this because it's not just me. Um, was there a there was different perceived um, value of the contribution of each, right? So, you know, from my point of view, and you know, and I always say that because there's always <laughs> right the other part. Um, you know, uh, one of our one of our partners back. In, I'm going back to my Wall Street days. Um, uh, you know, there was a perception that he was contributing more to the firm because he created a lot of activity, right? But I'm a numbers guy, and when you when your work's less profitable and you have more collection issues and you have more expenses, okay, I don't care if you're producing more revenue if it's if it's not netting out at a higher amount, then it's actually just more headaches for less money right so, so yep. you end up with financial differences in that a level of sophistication and analysis that people do um, and then you know the other partnership I had that didn't work out was it was much more of this split in vision just the way to treat clients the way to treat employees I mean my, my ex- partner on that side was a micromanager um, I'm somebody who was so far from that I hold people accountable for, for results um, but I empower them I train them I trust them. I let them run with things, you know, in fact, even, you know, with one of my long-term employees today is a small example. She sent me something. She said, Hey, I sent you this thing, you know, the review, uh, you know, if you don't have time, I can send it out directly to the other side. And I said, well, you know, do you need my review on it? And she said, well, no, not really. I'm like, okay, good. Send it. You know, um, yeah. you know there's always this tendency of people to want to, you know, um, so, so in any case, uh, you know, that's, so that alignment you know of a, a, a vision is important in a partnership you mentioned succession which raises some other you know um, uh, issues because often in succession there is a maybe the, the the successor has is a partner in that they have maybe a minority equity piece you know they've been given over time sometimes they haven't been equitized and they've also often come up in the shadow of the senior of the senior partner right so you have additional items on how you have that person be willing to step up to be, you know, it's very different being number one than number two. Right. Um, you know, so, so is that person ready to step up? Can they take it over? Sometimes the problem is the other way. The person is very ready to step up, but the senior person won't let go. You know, it's blocking, won't let go of, you know, control. So you got to work through those issues.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's very real and it's often at, uh, the 51 49% juncture where you got senior at 51% junior partner at 49 and all of a sudden senior saying, I want to retire in 3 years I'll sell you another 20 you know 6% so you're at 75 so that that happens and I'll say to to senior um so, so you can't do those expenses that are kind of gray anymore you know, and, and or, or how's that going to work? And maybe we should talk about it now. Like you should put a budget on, you know, how much can you spend on the visa to buy fill in blank alcohol for the company Christmas party or, or whatever it is. And, yeah. so, and and often I just had it last week where uh, an individual said, well, no, like I, I'm still the leader. and that, And I said, well, that's not how it works. That's ownership. That's, uh and, and interestingly enough, I think in some cases the junior partner has come along and trusted senior so long that they probably won't push the, the envelope because mm-hmm. it just makes it more awkward. So I don't know if that stems up or spawns on some some thought on your part about how how does senior you know, what should what should listener do who's gonna sell more of their company and not be the majority anymore?
0: Yeah, I will tell you that, um, in a lot of cases, just because of that dynamic, and I'm not saying always, sometimes it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, you know, we, we do what you're talking about where the majority becomes a minority. But I will tell you, in a lot of cases, because of all these issues, the way the deals work is the junior buys up to 49%, and then the next step is 100. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know, like, like, as long as the senior wants to be in control, he's got that 51%. But the next transaction is a 51% purchase by the minority, not a 26 right? And again, that doesn't always happen. We've done deals where, where, where there's a flip. But I would say in a lot of our deals, it happens that way because I try to have these conversations in advance of that change of control with both sides, you know, with, and it shouldn't be sides, but, you know, with the junior and the senior, and, you know, try to ask those questions like, you know, what is going to happen if you if you do go from 51 to 25, um, you know, and 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 he wants to, you know, do the big holiday party, you know, at twice or three times the budget, you would, how are you going to feel about that? You know, um, just to, you know to use your example. And, uh, and you know, a lot of times, sometimes at least or these amount of times when they think it through, they're like, you know, what? I'm not going to be really comfortable being, you know, so why don't I even if even if they wait another year or two. Uh, you know, uh, sort of skip the interim step from going from 49 to 75 and, you know, and do it a year or two later when they're really ready to go out. So that's one possibility is you, you just skip that step and go from 49 to 100. Um, but, but the other way is that, that I think, it, you know, it takes some very, you know, deep discussions about what is coming with that equity shift. So if we do go from the 5149 to the 7525, you know, what does that mean? Because you know, the truth is this legally you don't you know decision-making control doesn't have to follow equity change right so in theory you could still have it that the senior person you know makes decisions that's usually not that attractive to the junior person psychologically when the minute they get over 50 they they, they want to control it um, but you can but if it's not it doesn't have to be one or the other right you can build into an agreement that happens along with that equity exchange That senior guy still is in control of these certain aspects because, you know, a lot of times it's 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 actually they don't need to be in control of everything. In fact, they may very well want to be out of the business of a lot of the stuff, right? Because they get into that stage. But there may be a few things they really care about, right? You know, uh, in you know in your in your business, you know, maybe they're they're they've been heading the the investment committee at the you know wealth management firm, and they still want to. They still want to have some, some control over the investment, over the model portfolios, or whatever it is, right? You know, okay. They don't care. Yeah, you can hire, fire Joe. You can you can get more alcohol for the Christmas party. You know, I don't care. You can redecorate the office, but you know what? As long as I'm involved, I want to have the the investment committee, right? Or I want to make sure that we're you know, you know, not you know doing X or Y. So you you, you can potentially parse that down in a way that works if you have these conversations in advance and try to plan for
1: it. Thanks. Those are uh, two great things. Listener, you are listening to Corey Kupfer. That's coreykupfe com, or Corey Kupfer at his law website, KupferLaw.com. So Corey, I uh, appreciate that insight. I'm switching gears now to you being a lawyer and the dynamic and the life of a lawyer. Explain and just set the stage for when you went into university to become a lawyer and now you are a few years older than out of university is, you know, what was that vision when you were 20 year old Corey versus the reality that you're sort of living now?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, I'll actually take it back to, even a little earlier because I had this unique experience when I was in high school in Brooklyn, New York, there was a special law politics and community affairs program, LPC, they call it. I got into, so we went to like visit courtrooms and did mock presidential elections and prisons and like all this stuff. So I actually had a vision of what a lawyer was from that, and went into college. You know what you all call university? We call college in the states, right? Uh, I went into college, undergraduate, um, knowing I wanted to be a lawyer, which is unusual. Most people who end up to be lawyers are coming to, towards the end of their undergraduate college, and then like they're like, okay, do I go get an MBA or do I go to law school because I'm a smart guy and I don't know what I want to do, right? For me, I literally left high school saying I want to be a lawyer. So I go through college knowing I want to go to law school, graduate college, get into a good law school. and But, but still, I mean, obviously, I do deals now, right? So like going to prisons and courtrooms and my prison I had nothing to do with right? <laughs> Anything I'm doing now. Um, I told you, you know, that piece when I first came out about labor law and then switching over. Um, But, you know, the big difference to me that's evolved because, you know, after, you know, that first year, I was doing similar stuff to what I'm doing now. But at a big firm, you're doing very huge deals. Right. Um, And uh, and obviously, you know, when I hung out my shingle in 1992 and I was six years out of school, you know, General Electric Credit Court wasn't bringing me the $450 million leverage buyout that we just closed when I was at the big firm, right? So, you know, start out to, you know, doing smaller deals for smaller companies. And we've actually built back up, not quite, you know, we're not doing multi-billion dollar deals like the big, big firms do, but, you know, we're, we're doing deals up into the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, and as low as the, you know, as, you know, single-digit million, million two. But, um, but the difference is, much more so what's evolved over time is my role you know in the beginning um you know i was i was it right you know and i was not only was i um you know doing all the work but i was you know typing my own stuff and ordering my supplies from staples and you know and yep. and you know all that stuff right um over time i've been fortunate enough and we hard enough to build a great team and you know get seven lawyers you know working with me and 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 um and, you know, what I do is the high level, I bring in the business, I handle a high level strategy, structuring, uh, you know, high level negotiations. And I, I train to develop my team. And frankly, they do a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, on a deal. I'll come in and structure an M&A deal and, you know, um, uh, maybe negotiate the high end of it. And then, you know, when it's getting documented, my team is doing, you know, that's eighty eighty ninety 80, 90 percent of the work they're doing that. And they'll call me in, you know, from time to time if a negotiation issue comes up or a question comes up. You know, I get to do one of the things I often talk about is this concept of highest and best use. And as, as business owners in any business, ideally we should be doing our highest and best use areas only. Um, which for me, my definition is you've got to be really good at it, but that's, but if you are at it and you hate it, but, you know, so you got to love it. And a lot of people stop there that it's, you know, that they're, they're great at it and they love it. But as a, as a, as an owner, as a founder, as a key executive in your company, as a high-level person, it's got to be a third element, and it's got to be highly leverage, It's got to make a difference. It's got to move the needle, right? It's got to be impactful. So,
1: um, leverage as in take on debt or leveraged in? No, no, I
0: mean, leveraged to make a difference. I mean, I, I mean, I mean it yes. makes a difference, not not, not leveraged in it that way. So what I'm saying is that, um, to me, I'm constantly working towards, hey, what are the... How can I only do the things that I'm great at? I love and make a big difference in my company and for my clients, right? And then hiring uh, and you know and, and outsourcing and, and systemizing everything else. Um, so that's probably, you know, the big difference. I've you know I've gone from ordering the staples and drafting the documents, you know, to uh, uh, you know to having a team that does everything that's not this high you know high level stuff that I that I get to do, which is which I love doing.
1: From your peers who do uh, litigation work compared to you, who would you say, because I wouldn't say you're on an adversarial side, but negotiating, you know, can be, it can be. So, you know, often, you know, in, you know, we do a lot of disability insurance for for lawyers and we know that, you know, mental health claims are like 15% higher for lawyers than any other sort of profession. So that, that says something about the wear and tear kind of on the, on the noggin. So how, how do you balance that, or is there anything you know mindful that you do to be aware of that?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And listen, frankly, um, there are a lot of lawyers who really not don't love what they did. You know, it's it's, it's very unfortunate, and uh, and I can see where that stress comes in. I mean, listen, I I can tell you stories from you know my bigger firm, medium firm days, you know, before my firm where you know, I mean, uh, you know, a partner throwing and and for the Younger girl, I'm talking about, this is, this is a story from pre cell phone days. So the only phones you had were desk phones, right? You literally threw a desk phone at an associate. Okay. You want to talk about somebody who was, you know, some yep, ready for a DI claim. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you used to see that kind of stuff and it, and, it's, and I think it's a combination of a number of things. One is lawyers tend to work long hours, right? So that could be, you know, grueling. Um, in, in, in bigger law firm structures, um, they're, you know, and they still are to this day, but certainly back, you know, in my day, very antiquated management structures, just very hierarchical, you know, very negative in a lot of cases. Senior partners dumping on the junior partners, junior partners dumping on the senior associates, dumping on the junior associates, everybody dumping on the staff. Like, not, you know, not, not a new management style, not an empowerment model, not, you know, uh, you know. And so, so that's, so that's a problem for, you know, some folks, people feel overworked and under, underappreciated. And then even if you go in the other extreme, you look at a lot of, a lot of these, um, 12 firm of solo attorneys, um, you know, they're selling their hours and, you know, and, and humping it and they're, you know, they're 70 years old and they still, if they, if they don't work today, they don't, they don't make a dollar. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a challenging profession in that way. I feel very blessed and fortunate. Because um, I looked at the big firm model and I said, Oh, I don't want to do that because the senior partner there who's making you know millions of dollars is miserable and never sees his family and has no time to spend all this money that he's making. Great, he's got three houses and a boat, but that doesn't turn me on. The solo practitioner over there who went out on his, his or her own is just working to sell hours and you know and, and, and is not happy either if I'm going to continue to do this, and I really did come to a point where I was disillusioned um, before I have my own firm. And I said, okay, I want to work for myself. I know that working with someone else is not going to make me happy. I'm unemployable. Ultimately, I want to do my own thing. Um, but do I want to do it in law or do I want to do something else. Right. And what I figured out was I literally took four, you know, I had gone to high school, college job, law school, no break. Um, it wasn't even on the menu. I came from a local middle-class family. You didn't, you didn't, backpack in Europe or take a ski year in Colorado. That wasn't like, nobody gave me a venue that included that. Um, so, but when I, when, when I was, you know, approaching my sixth year and thinking, that, you know, I'm, I'm leaving, I want to open some sort of business. I took four months off and skied in Vermont, 42 days um, of skiing and really took that time to say, Hey, what do I want to do? And what I figured out was 99.5% of what I hated practicing law at that time was related to working with someone else and you know just doing it not in the way so I, I i said i got a vision of how i can build a firm that respects their the team and the staff that it really cares about the clients that you know um that um compensates people fairly that doesn't micromanage people i really have a vision for that um and and i you know uh, listen there's been ups and downs it's the entrepreneurial journey but overall i've been able to build that and and i do what i love and i work with great clients and i've gotten well to the point where or if a client's a jerk or there's not appreciative or abuse of my staff, they're gone. Like I fired, you know, it rarely happens now because we don't, but you know, there was a time when, when I was shifting from just, you know, needing to make the money and, you know, to, to being able to have some more discretion and, and, you know, I had fired some clients back then because they just weren't worth it. So um th- just, just to, to circle back to your specific question, I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure, certainly litigators are on, all kinds of deadlines, they got to run to courts, you know, but even on deals, you know, you could be working hard and, uh, often in environments where you're not appreciated. Um, you know, often with people who are not happy in their own lives, you know, you know, who maybe you're working for and it, you know, it creates a lot of dissatisfaction and I feel very blessed that I've been able to create something I love. And, and also that, that, um, I, ha- I mean, I have some very long-term, you know, folks been new with me 15, 20, 25 years in various relationships um, you know, which is great, you know, because they they're happy, obviously happy as well, you know. Uh, so, uh, but the profession—it's—it's a—it's a challenging profession, and I, you know, shown by your comment on the, you know, on the DI claims.
1: So in in uh, for listener who is maybe feeling those same thoughts, maybe feeling that I don't, am I in the right tribe? I just, you know, not like how how you know you kind of mentioned how you parlay, but like how does let, let's talk money? How how do how do you charge for deals? Or, or you, yeah. And I assume, you know, in, in Canada, it's probably similar to corporate lawyer who's, you know, doing transactions of either property or a business. And there's, you know, going can be different models for that, of that yeah. compensation. So is there one way you, you fit into the deal or is there multiple ways? Yeah,
0: there's multiple ways. But what I will tell you is we do our best – There's aspects where we need to charge hourly. It's just, you know, it's a negotiated deal. You don't know. You can't. You have no way to know how long it's going to take. You're getting documents from the other side to review. You don't know if it's going to be a great, tight, fair document or if it's going to be some horribly drafted, one-sided, you know, right? Um, But when we are drafting things, like we have fixed fees for everything that we do regularly, right? We're doing an operating agreement, a shells agreement. If we're doing even a first draft of an asset purchase agreement on a deal, we're going to go hourly after the first draft because we don't know what's going to, happen. but we try to first of all, clients like more price certainty. If you can give it to them Two, and this is one of the problems of the, um, legal model or, or honestly, any business that charges by the hour. First of all, I don't think it's the appropriate, um, measure. So it, because I have 35 years plus experience, it actually takes me a lot less time to do something than some other people on certain things. Right. And also the time, I mean, if I can, I mean, we just had a deal with a client uh, that they were, uh, they had structured this deal. They assumed that the $4 million they were taking was going to be ordinary income. And I had a, I had a way to structure it with the, the capital gains for them, that, Right. That's going to save them a million dollars in taxes. Right. So, you know, give or take. Um, well, it, it, it is the fact that that, Took me fifteen minutes to explain to them, you know. I should just bill for fifteen, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, what's the value you're providing? So we try to, you know, value bill, and, and it also creates incentives. So what the hourly billing uh, system creates for lawyers is, is incentives to be inefficient because you make more money. Uh, it it gives you with, you know, so so some lawyers are padding bills, right? Because and, and, and I think there's a psychological toll to that because it's a, you know, there's a reason my book is called authentic negotiating. There's a reason I approach things in a certain way. But I think when you are, you know, now we're getting to an, into an inner work and alignment conversation. And, you know, and, and I think for a lot of lawyers, because to make money, their practices have to be out of alignment, which what, what I think is, is their own integrity. And, 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 you know, um, so if you're padding bills because, you know, you're getting penalized for, you know, inefficiency or for, for efficiency, then, you know, you're, you're you're not honest with the client. You you know, you're effectively cheating them because you told them you're billing by the hour, and now you, you're putting in twice as many hours. And there used to be pressures at big firms to do that. Um, so I think that affects people's, you know, mental health as well. So I'd rather say to a client, listen, this is our fixed fee for this. And the reason we do that is so you'll know what it's going to cost. And number two, it also gives us an incentive to take non-billable time to keep up on the latest, you know, best practices, changes in the law, update our forms to make them the best. The problem is in our billing model, if I'm doing that, making my forms really great and spending all the time to make make sure we're in best practices, that's non-billable, then I create such a great form that it takes it actually takes me less time to deliver it to you and I make less money. It doesn't make sense for us, it doesn't make sense for the client, creates perverse incentives, creates incentives to not put out the best product. So it doesn't serve anybody. So in any case, a long way of saying, we try to build fixed fee whenever we can. Some stuff we have to build hourly, that it is what it is. We do that. Um, and also just to be very transparent, I remember I had a client, big client, who reached out to me one time and said, Corey, hey, we give you a lot of business. Um, can you give us a discount, right? You know, maybe knock off 10 15 20%. Some of our other vendors do that. And I came back to them and said, we don't do that. And I said, listen, the reason we don't do that is very straightforward. We spend a lot of time very carefully determining what our fees should be, right? We don't overcharge, but we, we always charge, that you know, we're not the cheapest provider by any means, we're certainly not the most expensive, but we charge an amount that is fair and we're gonna provide you value at or, or beyond what we're charging you. What happens when you provide discounts, because I've seen this in the bigger firms, it provides these perverse incentives. Trust me, every lawyer I know who knows that there's a client is always going to negotiate a discount is taking that into account in their billing, and somehow they're making sure that that bill is another 15% higher to account for the 15% discount. And I said to them, I don't want to play those games, right? I'm not going to do that. So, you know, these are our fees. I said, what you get by being a great client is, you know, we're responsive to everybody, but, you know, if, if you call me up and you really need something, we're, drop, you know, we're going to drop stuff to, you know to, to handle you because you're a good client but, uh, but we don't discount a fee. So, um, you know, so that's our model. And I also think it it plays into our satisfaction because I actually think, um, you know, I, 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 you know, my character is intact. My integrity is intact. I have very honest, straightforward true conversations with the client. I'm not playing any games with them. I'm not pulling me over. Um, And I think, you know, I think it makes a big difference. And frankly, you know, we can build then systems and models that help us be more profitable while serving the client better.
1: What, uh, what was a, a big system or process you put in place once you started adding staff? So I'm thinking for solo practitioner listener that uh, is maybe like you, seven lawyers and, well, that's bigger than solo practitioner, but you know, that level of firm, maybe 10 or less employees. You know, when you were sort of scaling up, what was one thing that was a game changer to, uh, either you know, revenue or efficiency in your practice?
0: Yeah, I would say um, the pa- powerful use of systems and technology. So I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, so one is um, we invested in, um, it's a, it's on a Salesforce platform, but, but it's a program called Avalogics. It's a, it's a law firm layo- uh, overlay uh, on a, a Salesforce platform, and we then paid a consultant to customize that, us, right? What does that allow us to do? Right now, see, so, you know, in the beginning, when it was just me, I knew all the clients, I knew everything that was going on. If a client called me up and said, Hey, Corey, what's happening with this? I'd be able to tell. Them. Now I got multiple well, attorneys working on it, right? How do we keep track all this stuff? How do I know what's going on for a client? How do we make sure nothing's dropping through the, you know, uh, through the cracks, right? Um, so we we track every single client, every matter we have active, who's responsible for it what the latest update on the task is we assign tasks back and forth through the system we also build through the same system so it's, a, it's an all integrated system which creates efficiencies but also creates accountability and transparency and you know reminders and workflows you can create in there um, you don't need that when you're you know i mean you you need probably more than you think when you're a solo because uh, you know when we try to uh, but but you, you know but 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 some of that functionality you know, where we're sharing information and, and assigning tasks back and forth and updating it in a way that everybody can see, uh, you know, is less necessary when you're smaller. Um, for us, that makes a huge difference. And along with that is this conversation of creating these great templates and forms because we have a fee structure that make, uh, has that make sense. So we do a great job with that. So we're not recreating the wheel every time, um, you know, which creates you know more work, but also also creates the possibility of more mistakes. Um so yeah, that you know that's been a big part of it. I I'll share one last thing. I was at a seminar once um, where again I I, I wish I could credit. I don't know who it was, but it said something. A great question to ask um, yourself as a business owner is if you have a repeated repeated frustration or something that, that repeatedly goes wrong, right? You know this keeps happening. Why does it keep happening, right? Um, ask yourself this question: What fully implemented system have I not put in place? That would take care of this, that would alleviate this. If you ask that self-question as opposed to being upset because, you know, at your assistant or whoever it is, why do we keep dropping the ball on this? Right? Like it's her fault or his fault. Ask what fully implemented system is not in place because that will have you think, well, maybe there is a system I can put in place like this. Like we had an issue several years ago where we started growing very quickly and we got in many more prospects. We did a bad job on follow-up with those prospects because the volume had increased. It was a good thing, right? We were growing. We were getting more relationships. The volume had increased, but we didn't have a system for follow-up, right? When it was a trickle, it was easy to remember. So we so we started tracking the prospects in our system and putting tasks, follow-up, you know, a week later, two weeks later, whatever. We put a workflow out of that that then, you know, created a system that alleviated that issue of lack of follow-up prospects. Now, what do you think happened to our close rate? On on those prospects by putting that system
1: in place, a lot better. Yeah. Uh, Corey, w- finishing thought on uh, so what is uh, coming from the the New York side? You got you you got two places, New York and uh, California. But your ultimate picture of wealth is what? Mm.
0: So. It's it's a great question because I have I have this exact conversation with our advisor who you know who we work with and uh, and as I mentioned to you off air we represent like hundreds of advisors in the U S you know so so it's uh, we're in this world a lot um, you know so for me I've got to I've got to take it back to um, my ultimate values in life because how do I you know in my mind I can't define wealth unless I know what I'm measuring because wealth is not just
1: revenue or money right.
0: So my highest value in life, my highest ideal life is freedom. I talk about it on my podcast at the end. It's my last question on my podcast to the guest. So I value freedom very, very highly. So for me, my wealth, if it doesn't give me freedom, then it's just money, right? So, um, you know, when we, when we sit down and look at it, my wife and I, we say, okay, what does that involve? Well, as an example, we don't own any personal real estate. We used to. Okay. And I know I I can give you all the arguments on, you know, the financial advantages of owning real estate and having a deductible mortgage and blah, 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 and the appreciation over time, whatever. I understand all that stuff, but it restricts my freedom, right? We decide, what if I don't want to live in California anymore? What if I want to go to Bali for three months, right? I don't don't know that I'm going to Bali for three months, but I, but, you know, it's a lot uh, harder when you own property, you know, that you, you know, you still have to carry that, that financial burden. Um, so, so I, what I look at is, Hey, you know, what is going to, what is going to get me freedom? Okay. Lack of owning personal real estate. That's, that's one of them Two, you know, we live in a very high end building in, uh, you know, in, in, in California, right? We pay a lot of money in rent on it, which some people might say is financially stupid, but you know what? I get to, I, I get to look at the, at the marina every day. I get people to come up and fix stuff when they, you know, when it breaks, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to repair anything that frees up my time, right? When I have free time, I go make money, right? And I go make money at a heck of a higher rate than, 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 you know, the guy who's fixing my boiler or, you know, the toilet, right? So, um, you know, so, so for me, my definition of, of you know, of real wealth, of real, you know, financial freedom is, is to be able to create um, the life I have that I want to have right not after I quote unquote retire it's not even a concept I believe in okay um, that allows me to do what I want to do. It's something I, I often call ideal life now. like how do I have my ideal life now? And for me that includes that freedom it includes travel. My wife and I travel a lot we love you know spending time. It includes a and we've really stepped it up further uh, a robust uh, philanthropy plan right? You know, if we're, not, if we're not doing philanthropy, if we're not giving the things and causes and supporting causes we believe in, I'm not wealthy. You know, if I just have money for myself, that's not satisfying. So for me, it's having the full vision of what it means to me to be free to create the life that I want now and to be able to impact. Because my other big value is, um, is service and impact. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not wealthy if, I, if I'm not serving and impact as well.
1: Thanks a lot, Corey. That was uh, real special. Where can people find you online?
0: So um, the uh, sort of the hub website is CoreyKupfer.com, C-O-R-E-Y-K-U-P-F-E-R.com. That they can click through to my law firm website, KupferLaw.com. Through there, they can they can see the book, they can get to the podcast, they can get to my speaking and my online content on all the social sites. I'm just at CoreyKupfer. So you know, we're very personally active on LinkedIn. Uh, The team does more on Facebook and you know Instagram and all those other things, but you know, LinkedIn's my big personal platform where I'm. doing more of my personal
1: posts. It's all at Cover. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Corey. We'll talk to you on the next show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please like and rate the show, share with a friend, or use your new knowledge in your next conversation. If during the show, something gave you a pang of inspiration, motivation, or sense of uncertainty, act on it now. Get the clarity you're looking for. Find the permission you seek. Go to servicewealth.com to discover how others are learning how to take Fridays off or buying a recreation property, or spending more money. If you're an organizer of an event where you believe my philosophy on finance, and lifestyle design would be applicable, go to servicewealth.com and book me as a speaker at your next event. If you want a copy of our new book coming out soon, send me a message on Instagram or Facebook, and we will be sure to get you a first copy.